This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College. Join them for two weeks digging up dinosaur bones from the Jurassic period in Northwest Colorado this summer. For details, go to cncc.edu slash dinodig. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. And today in our 390th episode, we've got a special episode all about how dinosaurs evolved flight. Ooh. Yeah. I bet it's complicated. It is very complicated. You know it's complicated because I've been working on this for like three weeks. (laughs) (laughs) True. And then you also have Dinosaur of the Day Pyroraptor. And then I've got a fun fact that's more about flight, but in a really interesting and fun way, I think. But before we get into all of that, we want to thank some of our patrons for helping us to create this podcast. And this week, we'd like to thank Nicholas, TRX Dinosaurs, Ermel, Mr. DNA, Kyle, English Graham, Laurasaurus, Pipaceratops, Chris, and Kaylin. Yeah, thank you so much to everybody. We really appreciate your support. And of course, we could not keep this podcast going without you. So now on to the main event of how dinosaurs became birds. How did they do that feat? (laughs) Not with their feet. (laughs) So Different kind of feet. Yeah. The way I approach this problem is basically what is required for flight. I think that's maybe the best way to look at it. And then you can think about how dinosaurs needed to change in order to go from an animal that's walking on land to an animal that's flapping its wings in the sky. Obviously, a lot of changes. And as an example, I'm going to go through what it would take for humans to fly like birds, just because I think it's easier to conceptualize with your own body than me trying to explain all the different bird anatomy parts and stuff like that. So first of all, by flying, I don't mean gliding. Gliding has evolved over 30 times in vertebrates, including flying fish, (laughs) which launch out of the water and then glide with extended fins but then there's, you know, there's flying squirrels and all sorts of other things mm-hmm. that glide. It's just, Sugar gliders, right yeah, in the name. Exactly. All you need is basically some outstretched skin or fins or whatever, and you don't need any new muscles or anything like that, and you just sort of fall, mm. <laughs> falling with style, like Buzz Lightyear. It's still more than we can do as humans. Well, humans can do it a little bit with a wingsuit. It's sort of like a flying squirrel suit that you can put on. I mean, we can't do it with our bodies normally, but if you put on a wingsuit, you can still do it a little bit. But with a wingsuit, it's not really gliding because I think in order to count as gliding, you don't die when you hit the ground. And if you're wearing a wingsuit, you still need a parachute at the end of the flight to survive. So wingsuits don't really count even as gliding. So even with our best technology of gliding, we still need a parachute. We're just not flyers. We are not. We are no Petries. No. (laughs) So I broke it down into four things. I would say that you need to achieve powered flight, not just gliding. Mm -hmm. The first one is wings that are large enough to generate the required lift to get your body off the ground. Makes sense. 
The second thing, and that applies whether you're a glider or a true flyer. Yeah, powered flyer. The second thing is strong muscles to flap the wings and generate the necessary thrust to get and stay airborne. Mm -hmm. The third is a rigid and streamlined body. One thing that isn't really all that obvious until you start looking at the anatomy. And the fourth one is a lot of energy for flapping wings in the muscles and just metabolically, all the mitochondria and ATP and all that kind of stuff within your body, just pumping out. It's just an intense exercise. Mm -hmm. So breaking down the first one for humans, the maximum wing load in nature is about 25 kilograms per meter squared or 5.2 pounds per foot square. And that wing load is all it is, is the weight of an animal divided by its wing area, the surface area of the wing. Mm -hmm. So another way to put that is that if an animal has two wings, each one is a square foot, the absolute maximum weight for that animal is 10 pounds. It's how much the wings can support your body weight. Exactly. Yeah. How much lift they can create. And the biggest number we find in the animal kingdom is that 25 kilograms of body weight per square meter of wing or about five pounds per square foot of wing. Sounds like a lot. Yeah, it is actually a fair amount of support. I'm kind of surprised that the number's that high. And that's because most birds actually have a significantly lower wing load than that. So they're proportionally larger wings than they might absolutely need just to stay airborne. And that's because it's useful to not have be right on that bleeding edge. You know, if mm-hmm. something goes slightly wrong and you're falling out of the sky. Or you had a big meal that day. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. It's good to, and you know, say you're a female bird and you've got About an egg inside. About to lay inside. an egg, yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of reasons. Or bats, when they have a baby bat clinging to their chest while they're mm-hmm. flying, they actually do that. You need some leeway. Exactly. So theoretically, for a human with an average mass of about 140 pounds, we'd need a bare minimum of 28 square foot of wings and <laughs> and much longer arms because you can't really fit that on our body yes. in an easy way. A more typical wing load for a human would require wings about the size of a hang glider. So that's a wingspan of about 8 meters or 26 feet and an area of over 100 square feet <laughs> or 9 square meters. And then how would we fit through doors? Yeah, it's, I mean, maybe you could fold them in half or in thirds and then you'd only be three meters long or something. I don't know. It's it's still pretty cumbersome. I basically equate this to flapping a king-sized bedsheet on each arm. That's roughly the surface area of wing that you need, but it has to be a rigid thing. Right. So, so not an actual sheet. No. Yeah. It needs to be much different than a sheet. But that's sort of the, the size you're talking about. And you can imagine from our body the way it is. We don't have a way to hold a full king-size sheet out stiff mm-hmm. with one arm like it's it's not even close you when i hold my arms out when i'm exercising or something they get tired after a short amount of time <laughs> yeah yeah that's so that's the next thing is the muscles to flap those wings and i started out by trying to go down this rabbit hole of like how rick burrow yeah <laughs> of how strong the maximum flapping is because there are weight lifting things called flies and there's all sorts of different flies you can do and they have world records for different types of flies but the problem is that depending on the size and shape of the wing, the pure force of the muscles is hard to determine what we would need in terms of like raw strength. You can't really equate it to what we do flapping wise (laughs) in a fly versus to, to what a bird does. But one interesting detail 
and part of the reason that it's so difficult to calculate is that flapping isn't just about creating lift. So you can't just say, I weigh 150 pounds and therefore I have to do flies that equate to 150 pounds worth of force up. Because really what wings do is they're more about generating thrust. So you can think of them as sort of pushing the air behind them as they flap through the air. And most of the lift is created by the movement of the wing through the air. So the wing going through the air creates most of the lift similar to an airplane or a glider. So it's like, you know, the air just going over the top of the wing. The creating of the thrust is the really important thing. So that's what the powered flight, that gives you the thrust to stay airborne. Gliders don't have a way to create thrust because they can't move the air behind them, but they can create lift by keeping that wing out. They just don't have a way to push the air behind them to keep themselves going forward. And one example of why you see flapping and sometimes you don't see flapping is if a bird is facing the wind, sometimes they don't really need to flap their wings at all because that air is going around the wings and it's creating the thrust in a way for them. They have that relative airspeed. So they're getting that lift from the wind itself without having to actually move themselves through the air. Hmm. So they can sort of just coast <laughs> facing the wind at times. There is a big exception to this, though, and that's birds that can hover create 100% of the required lift just by flapping their wings. Like hummingbirds? Exactly. Hummingbirds are the main big example here. That uses so much energy. It does. It uses a lot of energy. The presumption is that the reason hummingbirds do it is because in order to eat nectar from plants, the best way to do it is by hovering in front of them. Mm -hmm. And nectar also, fortunately has a lot of calories in it, so it sort of works out in a yep. way. You'll never see a fat hummingbird. No. <laughs> well, actually, some of them, when they migrate, do put on, like, they double their body oh, weight. Oh, okay. Because they can't eat for but a long time. It doesn't last long. No. And also, as a result, this is really cool, hummingbirds can actually fly backwards and upside down. Upside down? <laughs> yeah. Wow. They're incredibly agile. Probably the most agile birds. In some ways, they're actually more like bugs than they are like other birds in the way their wing mechanics work. The way they move, too, it feels more erratic. It's so cool. Yeah. I think it actually looks more like a bee or something. Oh, where they yeah. Move really they directly. Yeah. yeah. Kind of in a straight line. Like they're always going straight towards what they want. Whereas birds, especially the bigger birds, sometimes look like the way they're bending their wings. They're like, ah, mm -hmm. <laughs> the wind's changing on me. What am I going to do? And then you feel like, are you going to hit me? <laughs> and then last second, they swerve out of the way. Exactly. Yeah. That's definitely <laughs> what Sabrina thinks. <laughs> so yeah, hummingbirds are a little bit different and they can hover completely just basically directly making lift with their wings by flapping them back and forth. But it's still the same general principle of the wing moving through the air is what creates the lift. So the math on the exact thrust required for flight with flexible flapping wings is incredibly variable. It's already kind of tricky to calculate on a fixed wing, which is what an airplane is. Mm -hmm. But we have an equation and then you put it in a wind tunnel and you figure out the coefficient of lift and you can sort of calculate it in most situations. But unlike that lift equation, birds often create little vortices or remove vortices by individually changing the pitch of different feathers. So they, <laughs> it's it really just amazing. adjust as needed. Yeah. So they have these things called primary feathers, which are the feathers at the end of the wing. Like if you think about a hawk, it's those ones that almost look like the fingers on the end, mm -hmm. you know, sticking straight out. And there's a little bit of air in between them sometimes. They can, since they are actually attached to the fingers and the wrist of the bird and the hand bones, they can adjust those individual feathers in a lot of cases and do all sorts of fancy stuff 
to create different types of lift and different minor adjustments, all sorts of really amazing stuff. And it makes it really difficult to calculate. In fact, we don't really have good models for birds flying. We find it experimentally. And even then, it's difficult to figure out just how birds fly because it's so complicated. Mm -hmm. When I started researching this episode, I thought, I'm going to find the equation for how big and how strong muscles need to be in order to flap, and I'll just be able to figure that out for humans. It's like, no, you're nope. not You're not going to figure that Too out. Too many variables. <laughs> There's so many variables, <laughs> and we don't even understand all of them quite yet. But there is a good paper by 2003. It was studied by Tyson Hedrick and others, and they found that a cockatiel at 7 meters per second or 16 miles an hour needs 23 newtons or five pound force to propel its 83 gram body at optimal speed. Hmm. So that gives you a, an idea about how strong its muscles are. Yeah. That it needs that much force and it weighs less than a pound to get going. Yes. With birds, they look so effortless flying that it's really easy to forget how much energy and force goes into all of this. Yeah. Yeah. They're really impressive. So just comparing humans to cockatiels, if that one bird that weighs only 83 grams and needs five pounds to push itself through the air, if you scale that up, the human with the strongest fly exercise, like I was talking about before, mm -hmm. is got to be under 200 pounds or 90 kilograms. I couldn't find an exact, I don't think they do world records for that specific type of exercise, but the world record for a dumbbell incline press is 105 kilograms, and that one's a lot easier. So I think it's safe to say that it's under 200 pounds. And that cockatiel needs somewhere between 20 to 30 times its body weight in force generated in those flaps. So we're not really anywhere near that because we're roughly around our own body weight in terms of how much we can press. Mm -hmm. And those cockatiels flap their wings about eight times a second. So we can't do that either. No. <laughs> there's, a, there's a lot of problems. It's hard to put a number exactly on how far away we are with our muscle strength. But we're at Pretty least... Far. Yeah, at least an order of magnitude away in terms of strength of our arms. So the third thing that we need to go with all that flapping ability is a rigid body that supports that flapping and hopefully without weighing too much. So actually, humans have a fair amount of flexibility in our torso and in our shoulders, and that actually makes flapping quite a bit more difficult. It's a lot easier to move rigid things than it is to move big, not rigid things. If you imagine like moving a mattress, even if the mattress only weighs 40 pounds and it's all loosey-goosey, mm -hmm. <laughs> it's pretty difficult to maneuver. Whereas if you have, say, a piece of plywood that weighs 40 pounds, it's a lot easier. Yes, I've done both. Yeah. <laughs> so birds have a lot of bones fused together in their torso to give them some rigidity, especially the ones that hold the shoulders in place. And then they have that to push against while they're flapping. Mm. I guess another analogy could be sort of like walking in sand versus walking on dirt mm -hmm. versus walking on concrete. It, you lose a lot of that energy when you're pushing against something soft. And even just internally in your body, <laughs> that happens too. The rigidity is also really important wherever the wing attaches to the body any flexibility can lead to wing fluttering. So this could be like around, say, like your armpit or all the way down to your leg in the case of a bat. And if the wing starts fluttering because there's slack in the wing, it's like a sail flapping in a breeze and <laughs> you lose a lot of that lift. Hmm. So 
if it's a boat, you're not getting enough propulsion. If you're a bird, you start falling. Hmm. <laughs> so <laughs> we need more rigidity. We need to increase our rigidity in our body and our shoulders and things like that in order to flap effectively. The other piece to the body is the streamlining. So far, I've focused on lift versus weight, talking about how much energy you need to lift yourself because gravity is always there. So it's obvious <laughs> if you want to fly, you need lift. Mm -hmm. But since you're propelling yourself through the air, unless you're a hummingbird and you're just floating midair with the more difficult way of flying, you need to balance the thrust versus the drag on your body. It's just like we talk about Spinosaurus swimming and how it needs a streamlined body so that it can actually make it through the water without too much effort. It's the same thing that dinosaurs and other flying animals need. They need a streamlined body. A way to get through the air. Yeah, without making it hard on themselves. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so usually birds do this by having a pointy head and a smooth body. And we're not really that bad if we go head first. Our heads aren't that big and bulky. It's not like we're a triceratops or something with like a big frill <laughs> sticking true. out or something. And our bodies are fairly streamlined. We do okay in the water too. You know, we're kind of streamlined. But unfortunately for flying, our center of mass is way out of whack. Usually what you want in an airplane, for example, is you want the center of mass a little bit in front of the wings. And our center of mass is way, way, way behind mm. our wings or our arms. So what we would end up doing is if we could generate lift with our arms by flapping, we'd basically stay roughly vertical. And then if we started going forward, we'd sort of be plowing through the air mm. vertically, not at all streamlined. So we'd have to get much smaller legs and much smaller leg muscles and all that kind of stuff in order to lighten up our bottom part and make our top part more we, center of mass. We'd basically have to morph into a bird shape is what I'm hearing. Yes. Yeah. Longer arms with the rigid wings and then these shorter legs. Yeah. Yeah. With a rigid body. Not necessarily rigid wings. Oh, okay. Right. Although you're right that while flapping, you do need some rigidity too. Because if it's just totally limp, <laughs> that's mm -hmm. not going to work. Or I guess we could also look more like bats if we want to stick to being a mammal. Yeah. Yeah, although bats look a lot like birds. When yeah. You, they have all these same kind of features. The only one that doesn't have its body kind of streamlined and behind it while it's flying is hummingbirds again. They have a more upright flight position, but again, you have to hover, which is a, a more lot difficult way to do it. One last thing, which isn't necessarily a deal breaker with our bodies, is that we don't have tails. <laughs> <laughs> it's not necessarily a requirement. There are a few bats that don't have a tail, although they, they usually at least have a little bit of membrane between their legs. The tails are really useful, though. They help a lot with aerodynamic stability and also with steering. Another way to put that is if we only have a source of lift at our arms and we don't have tail, because again, it happens while you're moving through the air, so the tail doesn't have to flap to create lift. Just the shape of it can create lift as they're going through the air. But if we don't have that tail creating lift, and the only source of lift is our arms. It's sort of like trying to balance on your arms. They're like yoga poses and things you can do where you're just balanced on your arms. And you can do it. Some people can do it. I can't do it very well. Pro pose. Yeah. yeah. You can do that indoors without much of a breeze. But now imagine you're outdoors and there's like a 15 mile an hour wind on you. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's not so easy to balance anymore. You need another force vector to keep yourself oriented properly. And that's why planes have tail fins because that way when wind hits them or there's some other disturbing force, the tail helps counteract that and keep them from just spinning out of control. That's good because it's already scary enough when there's lots of turbulence. Yeah. 
And then that last thing that I had in my list of things we would need to fly is a lot of energy for flapping wings. So flying is an extreme aerobic exercise. <laughs> in fact, for a long time, people presumed that the only reason birds could fly is because they have such amazing lungs where they can do that unidirectional airflow and they're getting oxygen even when they're exhaling. Mm -hmm. But as the only flying mammals, bats, I think, are the best analog for energy use because bats have lungs more similar to us. They do have larger lungs, but other than that, anatomically, we're closer to them than we are to birds. Fruit bats can have heart rates exceeding 1,000 beats per minute while flying. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, obviously. I can't imagine. Our hearts cannot do that. I mean, the fastest heartbeats are more like 200 beats per minute for a really healthy person mm -hmm. at the extreme limit. And they can't even, even the best people can't maintain that for that long, let alone a thousand beats per minute. They can also metabolize food incredibly fast. As quickly as eight minutes after eating fruit that they land on, a bat can start metabolizing that into energy. Wow. Yeah, it's, it's really fast. That's a lot faster than food gets through our stomach, yes. let alone into our tissue. It's very efficient. So fruit bats, their strategy is basically to fly to food and then quickly eat the food to make up for the huge calorie use that they just <laughs> used. <laughs> it's a trick so that they don't have to carry around a bunch of extra food in their stomach. Birds have similar tricks too. Seems like they'll always be behind the number of calories they need. Yeah, um, yeah, I suppose. Maybe that last flight home, they ate a little extra. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> they also use about 76 watts per kilogram to fly. And I know those units are kind of weird. But for an 80 kilogram person, that works out to about six kilowatts or just for fun, about eight horsepower. And a human does not have the same power as a horse. So that might give you a clue about how far away we are from that. <laughs> mm -hmm. But to maintain six kilowatts, you need to metabolize over 5000 calories an hour. And humans can't do that either. I think there was a famous story about Michael Phelps where he ate like 5,000 to maybe 10,000 calories a day, mm -hmm. but obviously not an hour. Right, took <laughs> several hours. Yes. Swimming the butterfly or sprinting both cap out at about 800 to 900 calories an hour. Good exercise, but it doesn't compare to flying for an aerobic exercise. No, it really doesn't. And so it seems like we probably don't have a good enough metabolism, possibly lungs, to go an hour straight at that rate. Both with the heart rate and the calorie consumption, we're only about a fifth of what those flying animals achieve. So in summary, in order to turn a human, ourselves, into flying animals, mm -hmm. we have to get much lighter, especially basically get rid of our legs <laughs> and most of the muscles around there, sort of shift our center of mass forward towards our head. We have to get much bigger arms. We have to grow huge chest muscles, and we have to de develop some new skeletal structures to sort of have those muscle attachment points as well as to get a little more rigid, and then likely also add a faster metabolism, which is a lot of changes to do. Seems very unlikely then. This is compared to gliding where it's you grow a little more skin mm -hmm. and then you jump out of a tree or whatever. That's why there's a lot of gliding mammals. <laughs> yeah. It's pretty impressive that flight has evolved even three times in vertebrates over the last 200 million years. Yeah. And there's a lot of trade-offs, I guess, evolutionarily. Like what's more advantageous, being able to get around through the air versus the amount of food you would have to take to make up for it. Yes. And that whole issue of 
basically, in order to fly, you have to have all your muscles centered around your arms. Mm -hmm. And in order to move on the ground, you need all your muscles on your legs. Mm -hmm. So that transition is really awkward because you're pretty vulnerable. Will you even make it through the transition? Yeah. (laughs) Or your descendants. It wouldn't be be the same species. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. So reframing the question... I think can get us to the answer a little bit easier. So one way we could ask the question instead is if a human-sized bird could fly. Okay. And the answer is yes. It is possible. There's a bird called Argentavis. Is it human-sized? It is human-sized. Oh. You might be familiar with it from Ark Survival Evolved. They have an Argentavis in it. Mm. It's from the late Miocene, which is about six to nine million years ago, and it's from Argentina. Estimates put its weight at 70 to 72 kilograms, or 154 to 159 pounds. Oh, yeah. Which is right around an average human. Actually, the average human is about 140 pounds, so it's actually a little bit heavier. And it is the heaviest known flying bird ever to have lived. While standing on the ground, it would have been about 1.5 to 1.8 meters, or 5 to 6 feet tall as well. Yeah, that is human size. It's all. It's pretty much human. Yeah, if you're going to make a human-sized bird, I think Argentavis is pretty much it. It's also a terrestrial bird and not a seabird, which makes it a little bit more like people since mm-hmm. we spend our time on land. And it's usually recreated like a giant Andean condor because it was found basically around the Andes in South America, and it has a lot of things in common with Andean condors. They estimate its wingspan at about 5.1 to 6.5 meters, or 16 foot 8 inches to 21 foot 4 inches. Wow. So that's a little bit less than my hang glider analogy. And while in flight, it would have been about 2.7 to 3.5 meters, or 9 to 11 and a half feet long. (laughs) (laughs) Some estimates looked more like 2 meters or 6 and a half feet. It kind of depends on how big it's tail feathers are and how much it stretches out its neck and how many vertebrae it has and details like that because the length of the animal isn't really all that important in terms of flying it's more about the wingspan and things like that but that's why it's so much longer than it is tall because of that tail feather and neck stretched situation Mm -hmm. it has a wing area of about 8.1 meters squared or 87 square feet which is roughly the same as two king size bed sheets (laughs) just stretched in a different shape but even with all of that, all of those things, it also had the you know big muscles that you'd expect and all the adaptations of rigidity and everything. But a study by Chatterjee and others from 2007 found that Argentavis was too big for some things. For example, it probably couldn't sustain flapping flight for very long, hmm. meaning it's not like a pigeon that can just land wherever and take off whenever it wants to mm-hmm. sort of have its run of the place. And it probably couldn't even take off from standing. It might have needed to jump off a cliff or run downhill to generate the lift to get up in the air. Oh. Because again, it's that horizontal movement, that thrust that creates the lift around the wing. And that's the cheaty way to do it. (laughs) (laughs) But it still works. That's how bats do it almost all the time, too, is just falling into flight rather than jumping into the air or flapping the wings to get up in the air. Didn't you say that might be why they hang upside down? Yeah, well, it's also because, like I was talking about, where your legs have to become pretty much useless, Mm -hmm. they don't have a good way to sort of stand upright. It's easier for them to just be upside down. But you're right, yeah, it makes for an easier escape (laughs) if you have to fall to take off, if you're just one toe release away from falling. Argentavis has only been found in Argentina 
And the Andes give lots of opportunities for thermals and updrafts, especially on like the windward side of mountains. And so models show that it probably was a good glider and it only fell at about three degrees and could go about 67 kilometers an hour or 42 miles an hour. That's fast. Yeah. Yeah. It's like it's a pretty good glider. It has a lot of advantages for going around mountains, but it is kind of limited in that way. You know, it, it couldn't just flap over to wherever it wanted to be. So basically, the differences between us and Argentavis point to all the key differences that dinosaurs had to evolve in order to achieve powered flight. Mm-hmm. They needed to grow their arms into much larger wings to create lift. They needed to basically reduce their legs. And they had to have huge chest muscles and large muscle attachment sites for those flapping muscles, along with some other changes to the rigidity of their body and a way to get lighter wings, which feathers turned out to be a pretty good way to do too. Yeah. This episode's brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College, where you can become a part of the scientific process. As a participant, you can go on a real-life dinosaur dig, and you'll be helping to advance science and our understanding of the ancient world. What's really cool is that the fossilized bones that are being excavated, they're public, and they're going to be displayed and preserved for future generations to study and admire. Yeah, we've mentioned how that's a really important part of the scientific process, not just getting them out and describing them once, but keeping them and preserving them so that future questions and future scientists can take a look at those bones to answer new questions and validate results. And the site is special and also near and dear to me because it's in the Morrison Formation, known for the sauropods, Mm -hmm. of course, of the Jurassic time. And it represents one of the best bone beds ever found in the saltwash member. Yeah, the current interpretation is that the site was the result of a brachiosaurus sort of jamming up a river and then other carcasses piling up behind it. Oh, no. And that's how we got a bunch of different types of dinosaurs all fossilizing together. So, oh, no, but also, yay. (laughs) Good for us as scientists. Mm -hmm. And dinosaur enthusiasts. Yes. So there are two scheduled digs if you want to get involved with getting these bones out of the ground. You can go from July 6th to July 20th or from July 22nd to August 5th. Head over to cncc.edu slash dinodig. You'll get all of the details. Just make sure that you register online by May 31st. And again, that is cncc.edu slash dinodig, D-I-N-O-D-I-G. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Real quick on bird anatomy, because I just, this is an amazing detail. There's a study in 2011 by Andrew Bywenner, and he looked at the chest muscles of birds, and it's basically two main muscles. So there's the pectoralis, which beats down and accounts for about 10 to 20% of the bird's weight. (laughs) Must be an important muscle. (laughs) It's a really strong, I mean, if you've ever cut into a chicken or a turkey, Mm -hmm. that breast meat is huge, Mm -hmm. and that's mostly the pectoralis, and yes, it is like a quarter of the bird. I think... We've bred those to have even larger proportionally breasts, so it's a little more skewed in the ones you might eat. But 
it works the same in general. It attaches to the sternum in the middle, that keeled bone, like we talk about, the keeled sternum. Mm -hmm. So there's a big muscle attachment point there. And then it attaches on the other side to the upper arm at the deltopectoral crest, which is something you talk about a lot in when they're looking for unique anatomy of animals. A lot of times they talk about the deltopectoral crest. Mm -hmm. It's like near our deltoid, basically, on our arm, the upper shoulder muscle. The other muscle, so there are two muscles, like I said, in the chest there, is the supracoracoideus, which lifts the arm, and that actually only accounts for about 2% of the bird's weight. What? It's really weird because our we use our deltoid to lift our arm, and it makes sense because usually the muscle is on the opposite side, you know, it kind of constricts to lift something, and so you'd expect to lift the arm that there would be something on the top of the wing, but it's actually below the wing. And then there is a tendon that runs up and over the shoulder like a pulley and attaches to the back of the arm. Hmm. And that way it can use that keeled sternum both for the flap down and the flap up <laughs> by using a pulley system around it. And it also makes it a little more efficient because it's kind of pulling a pulley back and forth. Huh. Yeah, it achieves the same effect as our deltoid, but more efficiently, in other words. Mm -hmm. So that's just a rough idea of the sort of chest muscles that we might need. Dinosaurs do have a head start on us in at least two major ways from getting from land-based animals to flying animals. So theropods have relatively light bodies thanks to their partially hollow bones and their air sacs, that pneumaticity. Mm -hmm. And we know that was around well before dinosaurs were flying. So it wasn't just an adaptation for flight. They also get more oxygen into their bodies for faster respiration thanks to that fancy unidirectional lungs that I was talking about. They have air sacs that fill on the inhale, and then on the exhale, those air sacs fill their lungs and collapse, but they get that new oxygen into their lungs, which is pretty amazing. And they also have two benefits that work well together. They have feathers instead of hair, and that can help with lift. But also combined with the fact that they have a tail, it gives them a place to put those feathers, which creates an excellent lightweight stabilizer and an additional source for lift and steering. So they're already sort of, you can imagine how they have some of the traits you'd want, but they do still have the, a lot of the problems we have. Like mm -hmm. they're, they have long muscular tails that basically need to go away and become a little tiny pika style because <laughs> right. it's keeping their center of mass way too far back. And they have big leg muscles just like we do. And their their weight is underneath them. And they rely on running quickly to catch prey in a lot of cases. So there's still a lot that they had to deal with. I want to quickly talk about feathers, though, because I just mentioned feathers. Feathers are not necessary for flight, but they can help. Of the three times flight evolved, only one had flight feathers the way birds do today. That's birds. Pterosaurs might have had simple feathers not too different than bat hair. And then bats obviously don't have feathers, but they do have some hair. Feathers are only really beneficial for flight if they can maintain a shape and are useful for creating lift. Obviously, if they're just little fluffy down, that's not useful for oh, flying. Yeah. There's also the whole thing about being asymmetrical. Yeah, I'm going to get to that. Okay. That's a whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> so real quick, before we get to the asymmetrical thing, imagine what you'd want if you had, if you were designing your own wings for your arm, mm -hmm. you need something that's firmly attached to your arm so that it doesn't just flap in the breeze. But you also need it to be lightweight and you need it to maintain its shape when it's pushing the air or being pushed by the air. So for a feather, that means that it's got a central strong rachis that runs the length of the feather and attaches to the hand or arm bone, and mm. it actually does attach to the bone, Ooh. which is why we can see those are called quill knobs, the bumps oh, on yeah. the bone. And it's a 
a nice way that we can sometimes detect, like we did with Dakota Raptor, that mm-hmm. it probably had these actual feathers attached to the bone. Then you need lots of branching structures that are locked together with little hooks. At least that's what the flight feathers have so that they don't deform easily. They're, it's almost like Velcroed together. And as an added benefit, they're made out of thin pieces of keratin, so they're very lightweight. Mm-hmm. Not all flight feathers need to be asymmetric, although it can help in many cases. So back to your asymmetric comment, it's not necessarily required, but it is really helpful, especially on some of the wing feathers. Mm -hmm. So if you imagine that rachis in the middle of a feather with air blowing on one side, the side with the air blowing on it is going to deform because, you know, it's got a fair amount, say it's like an inch away from the rachis and you blow on the on that side of it, but not the other side, like you're blowing towards one side of the feather, mm-hmm. it's going to deform that edge. So now instead, imagine that that side with the air blowing on it, instead of being an inch away from the rachis in terms of length, is only like a tenth of an inch. The wind can't get as much leverage on that part of the feather. It's not going to deform it as much because it's really close to that big, strong rachis that's holding it in place. Hmm. So that's what we mean when we say asymmetrical feathers. It's about it's not about the shape like of the feather in terms of the top versus the bottom. It's about how long the sides of the feather are from that central point. Yeah. If those discussion points sound familiar, uh, we talk a little bit about it in our previous dinosaur of the day, Anchiornis, episode 389. It had symmetrical feathers, which is how we know it wasn't really a flyer. Yeah. You could maybe fly with symmetrical feathers, but basically that deformation. So if you imagine the leading edge of the wing and now it's getting too much wind on it and it's starting to deform the front of the wing a little bit, that's not great. (laughs) (laughs) So it's like you might still be able to get enough lift. You might actually still be even able to create enough thrust by flapping the wings, but you might just be unstable. So those asymmetrical flight feathers, that's what all the modern birds have in the right places but there are still a fair number of symmetric flight feathers like on the back of the wing which are just there to create lift they Mm -hmm. don't actually they don't have a leading edge that they need to worry about and on the tail a lot of times those are symmetric too so it's not just asymmetric feathers all over the place the first dinosaur with asymmetric flight feathers that we found is archaeopteryx of course and i think it's still the first known dinosaur with asymmetric flight feathers period I presume that won't be the case forever. It might even have changed by the time this is <laughs> released <laughs> or have changed before we release it. I just couldn't find the example. But Archaeopteryx, nonetheless, is an incredibly important early flying dinosaur. Its name means ancient wing, but it can also be translated as ancient feather, which I think is interesting, mm-hmm. especially given that it had the first asymmetric flight feathers that we saw. In German, it's often called Urfogel. I think is how it's pronounced, which means first bird. (laughs) (laughs) The fossils we found are from the Jurassic about 150 million years ago and mostly in Germany. So that's sort of roughly for a long time how old we thought the early birds were. But it's still hotly debated about where Archaeopteryx fits in bird evolution. The consensus, though, seems to be headed towards it's not the ancestor of modern birds. It's sort of like E- Ichi and Amboteryx Mm -hmm. that had those weird, long, flappy skin things going on, that it is an evolutionary dead end. Right. And might not have led towards modern birds. Yeah, but it was one of the fossils that Huxley looked at and thought, yeah, maybe dinosaurs are birds. Yeah, yeah, it was really important that way too. 
And if you want to learn even more about Archaeopteryx, that was our Dinosaur of the Day back in episode 104. Yes. You can also get all these Dinosaur of the Day by going to inodino.com slash episode dash index or just go there and click on the episodes search. Weirdly, though, there was a recent theory presented by Michael Pittman at SVP that Archaeopteryx might have been developing flightlessness, kind of like how steamer ducks today are. They're (laughs) a really interesting group of ducks. But some of the features of Archaeopteryx seem to be not so great for flying. Let's just put it like that. Mm -hmm. For example, its legs are quite a bit bigger than you might expect for a flying bird. In terms of feathers, dinosaurs had feathers for many millions of years before they were useful for flight. So we know that their original evolution had nothing to do with flight. One possibility is they evolved about 100 million years before Archaeopteryx. (laughs) That's if the common ancestor of dinosaurs and pterosaurs had feathers. You got to go back that far. Mm -hmm. But it's not surprising because feathers are very useful structures. They're, I think of them like hair, except way better. (laughs) (laughs) I used to say like, I wished I had feathers. But after learning about how they attach to the bone, it kind of creeps me out. Not all feathers attach to bone, just the flight feathers. So maybe they wouldn't if I had feathers. They are really (laughs) cool, though. So feathers are great display structures. Obviously, you can look at a peacock and see that they're very useful for attracting mates. Mm -hmm. They're also really useful in a display of anger or intimidating rivals. For example, an ostrich, when they puff up their feathers, they're flightless. So why would they need feathers? It's because they can look much bigger and get other advantages aside from just flying. Mm -hmm. Feathers are also amazing for keeping warm and cool. So for keeping warm, penguins rely very much on their feathers. They have a pretty awesome set of feathers. They also help with waterproofing on the penguins and they trap air around them when they're in cold water. And when they come back up to the surface, it actually creates this like expansion that helps rocket them up. Wow. There's all sorts of really cool things that they have evolved to do with their feathers. Also helps with brooding. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Keeping eggs warm in addition to keeping themselves warm. Because, yeah, you're right. The penguins actually manage to brood Mm -hmm. on an ice shelf. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. You just put the egg on your foot and cover them in feathers. The key is to not let the egg touch the ice. Yeah, exactly. Feathers can also be really useful for keeping cool. For example, there is, I think we talked about this a long time ago, but there was a study looking at red kangaroo versus emu in Australia, and they found that emu can stay active in Australia while the kangaroos are stuck in the shade. We've seen that. We saw that in our drives through the outback, the kangaroos, and we actually timed our driving so that we would be driving on the hottest part of the day when the kangaroos are stuck in the shade so that they wouldn't accidentally hop in front of our car. Yeah, and we saw them like around sunset sort of lining up all over the place. And looking at us. Yeah, Yeah. it was creepy. (laughs) (laughs) So kangaroo, they just have hair, so they have to stay in the shade. They don't have any fancy way of cooling off. Their best strategy is just wait for it to get dark. But emu can use their feathered wings for something, an analogy, kind of like a parasol to keep their body cool. And they can also adjust their wings to change the airflow around their bodies. So it's pretty awesome that they, depending on the type of feathers you have and how you adjust them, it can be used to keep you either warm or cool, hmm. not just for insulation. And like us, where we have to go out wearing layers. Yeah. <laughs> feathers also protect from UV radiation. And I'm not going to go into this too much because we're going to talk about it more in an upcoming interview, but they are useful for UV radiation. 
There's also different types of feathers at different layers. So it's not like one part of the body just has one type of feather. Sometimes there's a downy layer on the base. And then on top of that, there's a contour feather or a flight feather or something. You can have all sorts of different things. And in the craziest example, sometimes a single feather is a flight feather on the tip, and then it serves other functions in the middle, and then a different function way at the base. Hmm. They can have these really complex multi-strategy uses for just a single feather and then overlap in really interesting ways. So there's a lot of reasons that dinosaurs may have evolved more complex feathers before being able to fly. So like Sabrina talked about in last week's episode, Anchiornis is also a feathered dinosaur, and it is 10 million years older than Archaeopteryx, but it does seem to have symmetrical feathers on its arms, which wouldn't have been as good for flying. In addition to the changes in wings and feathers that dinosaurs needed to do, there's a discussion about where the dinosaurs were in an ecosystem when they developed flight, and this is commonly referred to as ground up versus trees down. Mm Mm-hmm. So there are a few different versions of ground up, but I think they all count as ground up. The first one is basically a running or cursorial type of ground up. So again, remembering that you generate lift by the airflow over wings, you can create that airflow over the wings in multiple ways, whether that's dropping like a bat or jumping off a cliff. Another option is just running. (laughs) So that's how airplanes take off, right? They just basically go down a runway, Mm -hmm. get that airflow over the wings, and then up they go. Franz Nopsha actually was an early proponent of this grounds up hypothesis. He thought that maybe dinosaurs were running quickly with their arms outstretched for stability. And then over time, the arms may have had feathers on them, basically supplementing that stability. And eventually, maybe those arms created enough lift for flight. And then basically... They got into gliding and then started eventually getting the muscles for powered flight. That was what he was thinking for the ground up perspective. Although it's kind of funny to think of dinosaurs just for years running around with their arms out. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. This helps. With no feathers yet. (laughs) It's weird because I I don't know how viable this theory is because if you're trying to chase something, having your arms out just creates a lot more drag. Mm -hmm. So I'm not sure. Plus... Unless you're trying to corral it somewhere, maybe. Yeah, I suppose that's true. That was part of it. Like maybe they're trying to catch insects. Mm -hmm. So they have the arms out. That's basically what bats do. They actually use their wings sometimes to scoop insects towards their mouth. So yeah, maybe. It's it's a potential option. I like that Franz Nopsha came up with it because he's a really interesting guy. Yeah, yeah, a lot of interesting hypotheses. And that was over 100 years ago at this point, too. Another version of ground up is pouncing. So if you imagine a raptor jumping onto prey, evolving small wings might make those jumps a little bit bigger, a little bit easier, a little bit more controlled. And over millions of years, it's possible that those wings got larger and larger until eventually they could glide and then again, eventually start flying. And since Microraptor is one of the early dinosaurs that has multiple wings, you could see the connection to why people might think that's a possibility. Mm -hmm. The most recent ground up theory is wear or wing assisted incline running. And I actually kind of think of this as trees up (laughs) (laughs) because the way it's observed today is baby birds with underdeveloped wings in a tree and they can use their underdeveloped wings to help them run up steep slopes like trunks of trees or branches. 
Researchers have demonstrated that their flapping increases the slope that they can run up to experimentally with these modern small birds. Hmm. So it's basically been experimentally shown that wing-assisted incline running is a thing. It's definitely a thing with modern chicks. We just don't know if it was a thing with the evolution of flight. Weirdly, though, they seem to use their wings to generate downforce so they can get a better grip while running uphill. So like a spoiler on a car, it's the opposite of the way wings usually work where they're generating lift. This is (laughs) creating lift down. (laughs) It's pushing downforce. So that detail makes it a little bit harder to translate into powered flight since it's the opposite set of muscles that are important compared with flight. And it's just, it's weird that that would be the case, especially since modern birds have that keeled sternum and it looks like they have the best muscle attachment points for the downstroke and the upstroke has that pulley afterthought kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Like maybe they would have the muscles on the back (laughs) if this was how it developed. There's also one potential other ground up option, which I think should be mentioned, which is maybe early dinosaurs that were developing wing-like structures benefited from lift while running on water like a basilisk lizard. (laughs) (laughs) Because, you know, flapping creates some lift. It could have helped get just enough lift under them that they didn't sink into the water and maybe could escape some predators. Mm -hmm. It's a possibility. I don't know how likely it is. It's a very specific use case. That's another fun one to visualize. Yeah. Basilisk lizards did it, and you would never expect them to do it. So if they can do it, why not dinosaurs? Dinosaurs did a lot of interesting things. Yes. The other potential option other than ground up is trees down. And this one is just way simpler to imagine. I think it's probably the preferred option. It fits easier with the birds that we know of and some of the dinosaurs we know of, because a lot of the dinosaurs we know of have arms and legs that seem pretty well suited for climbing trees. So that helps support it. But basically, the idea is a dinosaur climbs up a tree and then it evolves gliding from the tree limbs with wings. And then obviously, we know that gliding is much easier to evolve than flying. So it's a reasonable place to start. And they can create that lift really easily by falling out of the tree. While doing that, they don't have to worry about running to create the lift or jumping to create the lift. Mm -hmm. Take advantage of the falling. Yes. And that means that basically they don't need their leg muscles that much. So you could imagine how it helps with that shifting the center of mass and shifting the muscles more towards the arms if you're not using your legs as much because you're in trees falling. And eventually, obviously, the idea is that those muscles shift enough that they can start flapping and they can actually fly like a modern bird can. I will say, though, I think the ground up versus trees down theories may be a false dichotomy because just like feathers, you can use the same structure for multiple things. I don't think there's any reason that a dinosaur couldn't be using its early wings for jumping and gliding and running uphill, depending on the situation. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure different lineages of birds were using them to different effect, just like modern birds. You know, some of them glide most of the time. Other ones are flapping like crazy. You got hummingbirds hovering. (laughs) There's a lot of potential things that could happen. Unfortunately, we still don't know what features the first birds had. We don't know if they were gliders first. We don't know if they were wing-assisted incline running flappers first. There's been a lot of studies and debate on this. Yeah. And we don't know when the first bird evolved or where the first birds evolved. It's, it's a really difficult question to answer. 
Most of the feathered dinosaurs we find these days are from China, and that's just a preservation bias where the feathers preserve and the type of rocks that they have. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't necessarily mean that some of the other dinosaurs we're finding throughout the world weren't feathered. Right. It's just harder to show. Or that we won't find more feathered dinosaurs elsewhere eventually because it's pretty recent that we even started finding the ones in China. Yeah, it was like the 1990s. <laughs> and then since then, we've found hundreds, maybe thousands. Some proposed ancestors to modern birds include Scansoriopteryx, also known as Climbing Wing, from the late Jurassic about 160 million years ago, found in Liaoning, China. There's also Microraptor from about 120 million years ago, also from Liaoning, China, but specifically the J-hole biota. And the J-hole biota is famous for lots of bird-like dinosaurs. Mm -hmm. Microraptor had four wings which is a possibility for the first birds. It's possible that they started flying with four wings. Yeah, it's all the feathers on its legs that make it look like it's got four wings. Yes, although, yeah, I, that's a good way to put it. It makes it look like it has four wings because they probably weren't super flappable and may not have been the most useful as wings unless they're sort of taking a parachute strategy to gliding, <laughs> like puffing out all over the place. Or like a sugar glider, I guess. Right. And we've talked to scientists who thought that the four wings was a strategy for brooding, not flying. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's true. There's also other early bird contenders in that area like Confucius Ornus. And then one other area I want to mention is the late Cretaceous of Madagascar about 70 million years ago has the bird slash dinosaur Rahonavis. So that's another potential option for early birds that are ancestors to modern birds. Mm-hmm. By looking at DNA, another suggestion is the common ancestor came from South America in the late Cretaceous about 95 million years ago. Interesting. Yeah. But like, it's just so unknown because we have so few places where we get to feathered animals. Right. And a lot of times these small dinosaurs don't preserve. So again, we're stuck with the we need more fossils. Hashtag need more fossils. <laughs> yeah. Always, always. Yes. Eventually, hopefully, we'll find enough fossils to get a better idea about which bird came first. But again, the trickiest thing is actually finding those feathers because we only get good samples of feathers from just a few places. Mm -hmm. So that's my summary of how dinosaurs evolved into birds. It's very complicated. It is. <laughs> <laughs> also seems like humans, we can't really do it on our own. That's why we have planes. Yes. <laughs> we have other stuff too, which are my fun fact. Oh, okay. A little, a little teaser. I had way more on flight and bird evolution and stuff but this is getting kind of long so <laughs> <laughs> as you write your life story you're far from finished are you looking to close the book on your job maybe turn a page in your career be continued at the georgetown university school of continuing studies our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only. Not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5HourEnergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%.
We have our dinosaur of the day, Pyroraptor, which was a request from PaleoMike716 via our Patreon and Discord, so thanks. And this one is a dromaeosaur, so, you know, very bird-like. It's fitting. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, dromaeosaur is likely the first birds, potentially. Yeah. It's also fitting because Pyroraptor will be in the movie Jurassic World Dominion, and that's coming out in just a few weeks. Colin Trevorrow had mentioned in an interview that he likes Pyroraptor. That's how we know? That's, yeah, it was in a few articles mentioned, and Pyroraptor's also in the games Jurassic World Alive and Jurassic World The Game. And Pyroraptor in all of these Jurassic World images, illustrations, <laughs> animations, is depicted as having feathers. Nice. Yeah, so Pyroraptor is a dromaeosaurid. Like I mentioned, it lived in the late Cretaceous in what is now Provence, France, in the La Bouchard locality, as well as in northern Spain in the Vitoria Formation and the Trump Group. It was a feathered raptor. It had a long, thin tail, and it had large claws on the second toes of its feet. These claws were two and a half inches or six and a half centimeters long. It's estimated to be about five feet or one and a half meters long and weighs 17 to 22 pounds, eight to 10 kilograms. That's a rough estimate, though, because it's hard to say based on the fossil evidence. So that's pretty similar to Velociraptor, maybe even a little bit smaller. Yeah. Now the type species is Pyroraptor olympius, and that genus name means fire thief. And that's because the fossils were found after a forest fire happened. The species name refers to... Mont Olympe, a mountain in Provence near where the fossils were found. A single partial skeleton was found in 1992, and then Pyroraptor was described in 2000 by Ronan Allen and Philippe Taquette. The holotype is the second toe claw of the left foot. There's other specimens that include the claw on the right foot, a right ulna, that forearm bone, two teeth, vertebrae, and digits. And those two teeth were found were flattened and curved backwards and serrated. So this is why it's a rough estimate for how big Pyroraptor was. The first dromaeosaur fossils found in France were Variraptor, and that was previously thought to be Megalosaurus panoniensis. Then Alain and Tiquette said that Variraptor was a nomum dubium based on the fossils being poorly preserved and the holotype having no distinguishing features. In 2009, Buftat and Shantazit found Variraptor to be valid based on the different shapes of those lower arm bones, the ulnas. Pyroraptor may have used its claws as weapons or to help climb. In 2005, Philip Manning and others modeled a dromaeosaur hind limb to study how they use their claws, and they built a robotic limb with a hydraulic arm, and they based their model on the second digit and claw on an articulated foot of Deinonychus. They created this claw with an aluminum core and a thin composite sheath of Kevlar and carbon fiber strands. And they tested kicking in a fleshy substrate, in this case a fresh pig carcass, as well as crocodile flesh. Though the dermal armor there protected the crocodile flesh and broke the tip of their claw. Oh no. <laughs> yeah. That's how ankylosaurs survived Pyroraptor. Those, that dermal armor, those osteoderms. That's <laughs> true. <laughs> They did high and low speeds. The low speeds were at 2 meters per second. The high was 11 meters per second. And they found that it produced these small round puncture wounds. So there was no slashing or cutting. And these puncture wounds could have killed smaller animals, but they wouldn't have been too effective against larger dinosaurs. 
So it's possible that they used their claws as, quote, climbing crampons, where they would leap onto their prey, grip with the claws, using them as established footholds, and then inflicting enough wounds through lots of bites. Interesting. Or maybe just using them as climbing crampons on trees. That too. (laughs) Now, once they're hooked on, if they were doing this form of attack, if the prey turned to attack them, they would also be turned by and with the prey, so the prey wouldn't be able to shake them. Mm. They call that the fatal embrace, and that's similar to big cats that dig their claws in to cling to prey and then use their jaws to kill it. Some other animals that lived around the same time and place as Pyroraptor include the ornithopod, Rhabdodon, Nodosaurids, Titanosaurids, Ceratosaurians, turtles, and alligators. And in addition to Jurassic World, you can also see Pyroraptor in the TV series Dinosaur Planet, where Pyroraptor Pod gets stranded on an island after a tsunami and then contacts dwarf dinosaurs like Magyarosaurus and Tarascosaurus. Yeah, that was a fun episode. And our fun fact of the day is going back to flight. Of course. And how flight started. But I'd like to give an example of where flight is today after 100 million years plus of evolution. So lots of people know the world's smallest dinosaur slash bird is the bee hummingbird at about two to three grams and about the size of your thumb. (laughs) (laughs) But you may not know that the world's largest hummingbird is the giant hummingbird from the Andes in South America. And how large is that one? It weighs in at a colossal 18 to 24 grams, just under an ounce, a little less than an ice cube. (laughs) (laughs) It's about 10 times as much as the bee hummingbird. And its length and wingspan are both about 9 inches or 23 centimeters. Wow. Because of their large size, the giant hummingbird's wing beats very slow for a hummingbird. It's only about 15 beats per second or 900 beats per minute. (laughs) And speaking of beats per minute, its resting heart rate is about 300 beats per minute with a peak rate of about 1,000 beats per minute. Oh, my gosh. Just like the bats we were talking about. Yeah, I was just thinking that. Larger hummingbirds take more calories per weight to hover than smaller hummingbirds. The giant hummingbird takes an estimated 4.3 calories per hour to fly, or very roughly 4 calories per gram per day, if you want to equate it to body mass. Like most hummingbirds, it gets most of those calories from nectar. According to the National Park Service, quote, if the average man had the metabolism of a hummingbird, he would have to eat 285 pounds or 129 kilograms of meat every day to maintain his weight. That's so much food. Yeah, that works out to about 320,000 calories a day. (laughs) And I'm pretty sure what they did was take four calories per gram per day as an estimate, and multiply that by 80,000 grams, or 180 pounds, and that gets that same 320,000 calories per day. Mm -hmm. As an alternative to 285 pounds of meat, you could eat 182 pounds of sugar. (laughs) (laughs) And if you're using a 1 to 4 ratio of sugar to water, which is a common hummingbird feeder thing to do, that works out to 103 gallons of nectar a day. It's giving me a stomach ache just thinking about Yeah, that's about half a year worth of food every day (laughs) (laughs) in able to fly. And it's almost certainly an underestimate, again, because it's not linear. The heavier you are, the proportionally more calories you need for flight. So that goes back to the really the only way for humans to fly would be to lose weight 
or to get way huge arms and mm-hmm. just shift all the muscle mass. Interestingly, females need more than just a ton of nectar. They also have to find sources of calcium since nectar doesn't really have any calcium. And they sometimes eat wood ash or specific dirt to get that calcium. Their beaks aren't particularly well suited to catching insects, but some species of hummingbirds do eat insects, which can be a good source of calcium as well. I think I mentioned this earlier, but hummingbird wings are actually pretty similar to insect wings. Their arms are a lot less flexible than other bird wings, but they have a way more flexible shoulder. So they can actually rotate their wings about 180 degrees to create lift while flapping both forward and backwards. They sort of like turn into it so that the top is always facing the direction that they're moving the wing. Hmm. Their arm and hand bones are also very short compared to the full wing. The bones only go about one third to halfway to the wingtip, and then the rigid feathers make up the rest, which is why you need that nice asymmetric feather because it's going doing most of the length of the wing in the case of a hummingbird. The primary flight feathers, which are the feathers attached to the hand bones at the tip of the wing, make up 75% or more of the wing area in hummingbirds, which is a crazy ratio. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and again, it is a great use of feathers since they're super lightweight and that also reduces the inertia of the wing when it's going backwards versus forward so they can switch directions a lot quicker than if they had you know a big bony arm going out weighing a lot more but unfortunately there's one big downside and that's that they can't fold their wings Hmm. because it's mostly a giant feather sticking out of the end of their hand so how do you fold that and then as a bonus fun fact Humans have achieved human-powered flight on several occasions. Mostly they use bicycle-like pedals to power a propeller with a person basically inside an ultralight aircraft. I feel like I've seen this in museums. Yes. Yeah, they have one at the Smithsonian Museum, the Air and Space Museum. There's Mm. a human-powered aircraft in there. By using this strategy, they reduced the power requirement for human flight to 280 watts, which many people can do for a couple hours. The current record for distance is the MIT Daedalus 88, which traveled 115 kilometers or 72 miles from Crete to Santorini in 1988. There have also been successful flights across the English Channel that were earlier and shorter. I don't think they're that exciting because they're a propeller and it's it's like, yeah, it's a propeller. That's not like a bird flying. (laughs) There is, however, a human-powered ornithopter that has flown. What's an ornithopter? (laughs) So an ornithopter is an aircraft with flapping wings. And that's what some of like the very early people that were studying flight were trying to create. It's basically like Icarus and Daedalus. That was the idea, you know, like you glue all these feathers to your arm and flap away and you'll... Don't get too close to the sun. Exactly. Yeah. So this ornithopter was successfully flown, quote unquote, straight and level for the first time in 2010. Oh. It's called the Snowbird. It was built by the University of Toronto Institute for Aerospace Studies, and it has a wingspan of 32 meters or 105 feet, (laughs) which is eight feet less than a 737. Wow. (laughs) Yeah, the wings are super long and very skinny. Where do you store that? In a hangar, (laughs) like an aircraft hangar. So those crazy wings allow for the most efficient flight possible, although obviously they're much less maneuverable. Mm -hmm. It weighs 43 kilograms or 95 pounds empty. And it's made of carbon fiber, foam, and balsa wood. So it's not the most durable thing of all time. In order to take off, it didn't actually take off on its own. It had to have a toe in order to take off. 
but it did maintain flight for 19.3 seconds. And in that time, it went 145 meters or 476 feet. And that works out to about 25.6 kilometers per hour mm-hmm. or 15.9 miles per hour. And it really needed those massively long wings in order to generate enough lift at such a slow speed. That's mm-hmm. the only way you can stay airborne that slow. It wouldn't be able to turn very well, though, since it's so wide and it was only about 10 to 20 feet off the ground. Right. Also, shortly after that flight, it broke due to wear on the components from the flapping motion. Oh, no. Yeah. (laughs) They estimate it took about 600 to 700 watts of input, which is just under one horsepower. And that's more than double a propeller style ornithopter which is why they only managed to go for under 20 seconds. Mm -hmm. And each flap took about 700 to 800 pounds of force. Wow. Yeah. But the pilot did manage to do 16 flaps before getting tuckered out. Oh, good. So it technically happened. It does have the asterisk of it needed a tow to get going and it didn't go that far and then it broke. Right. But then you build on it and make it happen without the asterisk. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> we'll attach a link to this the video of it flapping. It's crazy to see a plane looking glider thing with its wings flapping. Yeah. It's nuts. I love that this has been done. And it didn't really flap. I don't think it flapped even close to the most efficient way. It's nowhere near the amount of flapping change in direction that bird wings do. Mm-hmm. So it's possible that this sort of thing could be really useful in the future. There's also people trying to design mechanical hummingbirds that fly oh wow yeah but why because it might be more efficient you don't know until you try it that's true and it could have some cool uses that's true and if it's mechanical you don't have to feed it all that nectar yeah that's yeah that's, <laughs> i guess a good point <laughs> it also could help us understand how these things fly better oh yeah that makes more sense <laughs> and that wraps up this episode of i know dino thank you for listening if you are not already, consider joining our Patreon, patreon.com slash inodino for special perks. And yeah, thank you again for listening and until next time.